This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Jessie Berry. You may know Dr. Berry from her Instagram account, ModaMD. Not only is she an Instagram icon, but she's an incredible ocular oncologist, researcher, associate professor of ophthalmology at USC, and mother to an adorable baby girl who I love following through her Instagram. Dr. Berry, thank you again for joining me today pleasure to be here. So let's jump right into the case. This case is of a 14-month-old previously healthy girl who presents to your office with new right esotropia over the last two weeks. The parents also noticed a weird glow in the right eye in pictures and are getting concerned. They have not noticed any changes in her behavior and she has otherwise been her usual self. So, Dr. Berry, the differential diagnosis for unilateral leukocoria is pretty extensive, and it includes things that I like to think about, like congenital cataracts, Coats disease, coloboma, fever, nori disease, and so on. But when I see leukocoria and strabismus, my mind immediately jumps to retinoblastoma. Could you tell us what percentage of patients with retinoblastoma actually present with strabismus? Absolutely. So it's good that you jump to retinoblastoma because that's a diagnosis not to miss. The most common initial presenting sign of retinoblastoma is leukocoria or that white pupil, but approximately a quarter of cases present with strabismus, and that's the second most common sign. Other presenting features, which usually indicate more advanced disease, are hyphema, vitreous hemorrhage, and even proptosis. Wow. Yeah. The strabismus, I remember when I first um, was a junior resident would always trip me up because I always was thinking leukocoria and not necessarily strabismus. And that's something that I've had to drill into my mind over the last year and a half. What percentage of cases of retinoblastoma are actually bilateral? So 30 to 40% of patients with retinoblastoma are bilateral, which means that they have cancer in both eyes. And the nomenclature for retinoblastoma can be a little bit confusing, but in general, bilateral and hereditary, meaning that there's a gene defect in all of the cells of the body, are synonymous. 30 to 40% are the rates of this heritable RB. And again, the gene defect is in the RB1 tumor suppressor gene, which was actually the first tumor suppressor gene to ever be cloned and described. The other 60% of patients in general have the non-heritable form, although you should know that 
unilateral patients can still have the heritable form. So just because you see unilateral disease, don't think that those patients cannot have the germline defect. In my practice, I use heritable and non-heritable instead of unilateral and bilateral. The other thing to remember is that of heritable cases, only about 10% are familial. The others have a new sporadic mutation in the germline that's diagnosed in the patient. This is something that my residents get confused about sometimes. They say, oh, I saw leukocoria in both eyes. I'm thinking retinoblastoma, but there's no family history. Family history should not make you exclude retinoblastoma as a diagnosis, but of course it, it can make you include it. You cannot have bilateral non-heritable disease, at least that we've ever seen. But again, you can have unilateral heritable disease. I think that this was so helpful even for me because like your residents, I too, a resident, was extremely confused about this nomenclature. But I think that you perfectly outlined it for us between distinguishing heritable and non-heritable because I think I always think that heritable means familial. And those two things are actually not synonymous. They can have a germline mutation um, that's non-familial. So that's that's extremely helpful. That's right. Think about it as heritable for their kids in the future, not necessarily that they inherited it from their parents. Oh, that's so helpful. All right. So this patient is 14 months old and presenting with a unilateral leukocoria. What is the age of presentation for patients like this with retinoblastoma? So it varies a little bit at what age these children will present based on laterality and family history. So children with a positive family history present at about eight months of age. That's not because they have more aggressive tumors. It's because we're screening them because of that positive family history. So we pick up the disease earlier. Uh, in fact, in some patients with family history, uh, you can see retinoblastoma at birth or even in utero. Patients with bilateral retinoblastoma, which again means they have heritable germline disease, generally present earlier at 12 months of age, and that's earlier than those with unilateral retinoblastoma, which is about 24 months of age. And a lot of that is because in a unilateral case, the other eye develops normally and all of the visual function is based on that other eye. So the parents are less likely to notice that the patient is not seeing well uh, and maybe won't pick up that leukocoria until later. 90% of cases are diagnosed by age three and onset after age five is rare, but it can happen. Seven, eight, nine, 10 year olds, even adults, which is extremely rare. And we think that's a reactivated retinoma have been described. Wow. I think it's really helpful to think about it with the clinical correlates that you just gave that we're actually identifying the positive family history because we're looking for retinoblastoma. And I think that will really help us to remember the timing and which patients present first and which patients present later. What genetic mutation do patients with bilateral retinoblastoma have? So 98% of patients with bilateral retinoblastoma have a mutation in the retinoblastoma tumor suppressor gene, which again, we all generally accept that tumor suppressor genes exist, but at the time it was cloned and described, 
everybody thought that cancer genes were only activating. So it was a big deal to describe this tumor suppressor gene. Two thirds of patients with retinoblastoma have a somatic mutation. These patients present with one tumor in one eye, because again, that mutation is arising from the retinal cell and is not in the germline. There is a very, very rare subset of retinoblastoma, about 2% of cases and always unilateral, that do not have an RB1 mutation, but are instead initiated by an activating oncogene, MCN, which is amplified. This is something that's tested, so you should know this, but it's very, very rare. The retinoblastoma tumor suppressor gene is located on chromosome 13. Remember that even if you have bilateral heritable disease, it doesn't necessarily mean that you had a family history as most of these mutations are new and happen early in embryonic development. Any child that has an RB1 tumor suppressor gene in the germline or in all the cells of the body have an increased risk for trilateral retinoblastoma, which means both of the eyes involved as well as the CNS. And they also can develop secondary cancers later in life in their 20s, 30s, 40s, like osteosarcoma, chondrosarcoma, fibrosarcoma. Sarcomas are the most common, but melanoma and breast cancer and multiple other cancers can also be seen in these patients. So they need lifelong surveillance. In patients with bilateral retinoblastoma, what is the chance of transmitting the tumor suppressor gene to their children? This is a great question because they love to test you this on the boards and on the OCAP. So there is a 50% of transmitting the mutation to offspring, but there's only about 90% penetrance. Now that's still very high, but it's not 100%. Therefore, the quoted number for developing retinoblastoma in children is 45%. And what about children that have unilateral retinoblastoma or non-heritable retinoblastoma? Yeah, so that is a great question. And it depends just on what you, the question you asked, is it unilateral or is it known to be unilateral non-heritable? Remember that 15% of children that have unilateral RB still have a germline mutation. So it's really critical that these children have testing of the blood to see whether or not that mutation is present. If you know the mutation is present, then the risk to their future offspring is the same as it would be for bilateral because they have a germline defect. However, if it's unilateral and it's known to only be somatic, then they don't have that risk of passing on to children. That's actually why in in the BCSC and other books, you see this confusing number of 7 to 15% risk. That's just based on the assumption that the child may have germline disease. Does that make sense? That is so helpful. And I'm always extremely confused with the risk of transmission and the difference between heritable and non-heritable, and I'm starting to gain some clarity. So moving on a little bit into the workup of these patients, how would you work up a patient with suspected retinoblastoma? The most important thing to do is a full ocular examination. And of course, if you are concerned for retinoblastoma, this is done under anesthesia so that you can get a really good look in these children. You measure the corneal diameter, 
This is to evaluate for whether the eye may be microphthalmic, as you could see with persistent fetal vascular, or bookthalmic in the setting of glaucoma, which you can see with advanced retinoblastoma. The anterior segment exam can also help you differentiate between different diseases on your list because persistent fetal vasculature will involve the ciliary body processes and often elongate and rotate them forward. If you see that, that's pretty pathognomonic and you can rest easy that you're unlikely to be dealing with retinoblastoma. Pressure is important. Pressure can be elevated in retinoblastoma, both from closure of the anterior segment by moving that lens diaphragm forward from a large tumor, as well as neovascular glaucoma. And then of course, you need to look at the back of the eye we say with scleral depression, although often these patients present with such a large tumor that you can't see the optic nerve or macula or other features of the back of the eye. You only look straight at the tumor. Diagnosis for retinoblastoma is clinical. It depends on the ophthalmoscopic appearance of the tumor. Endophytic retinoblastoma, meaning that it's growing into the eye from the retina, appears white or cream colored. It is very frequently associated with vitreous seeding. And you can see large caliber intratumoral vessels. Exophytic tumors sometimes appear a little bit more yellow and they grow in the subretinal space. And so often you will see a large exudative retinal detachment overlying the tumor. These are the types of tumors that can more often mimic the exudative retinal detachments of Coats disease. Classically, retinoblastoma should not have any exudation at diagnosis before treatment, although you can see it after treatment. So it is important to be able to differentiate RB from Coats. Evaluation of retinoblastoma also requires some imaging. So we always obtain an MRI of the head in orbit to evaluate for CNS disease, as well as to evaluate the optic nerve for any signs of direct tumor invasion. And we also do ultrasound during the examination under anesthesia. That should identify a dome-shaped retinal mass and intralesional calcification is pathognomonic. So what you'll see are these bright white flecks in the center of a dome-shaped tumor. In general, we like to avoid CT in these patients as a third of them do carry that germline defect and so they have a risk of secondary tumors from radiation. So we stick to ultrasound and MRI. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. So I actually recently saw a case of retinoblastoma when I was on my children's rotation. And I remember when we were doing the ultrasound and doing the uh, fundus exam, it looked like nothing I had ever seen before. So it was pretty impressive to see it and 
um, see the ultrasound characteristics in real life because you read about it, but it was different in person. Um, so how do we stage retinoblastoma for these patients? So when we think about staging for cancers, we're often talking about staging for the whole body, talking about where the disease is. And that is important in retinoblastoma, but thankfully in the United States, the vast, vast majority of these children will present with intraocular disease. So because of this, there's also a group-based staging just for the eye. As you can imagine, there are a couple of different uh, group platforms or staging platforms for the eye, but the most commonly used is the ABCDE Murphy classification, which was described at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. You don't really need to memorize the teensy tiny details of each one. Just know that they are classified from A through E. A tumors are small, and they are far away from critical structures in the eye, including the optic nerve and the fovea. B tumors are bigger and closer and may even have some early subretinal fluid. C is for seeding. Group C are the eyes that have early seeding that is still overall close to the main tumor. Group D is the most common eye that walks through the door of our retinoblastoma service and most retinoblastoma services across the country. Group D eyes have diffuse, D for diffuse, seeding, as well as generally a very large tumor that's taking up a large part of the body of the eye. And group E are tumors that have decimated the eye. I think group E means tumor is everywhere. This can be tumor in the AC, involving the ciliary body, directly behind the lens, or tumor that's causing glaucoma, vitreous hemorrhage or hyphema, which obscures the view, an orbital cellulitis-like presentation, or even eyes that have already gone tysical. So think about it that way. A, tiny, far away. You can even think easily treatable progressing all the way to E where the tumor is throughout the entire eye. I think that was the most helpful classification of a tumor that I've heard since starting my medical training, whatever, seven years ago when I started. And it was a great way to remember each of the little groups. So hopefully our listeners also benefit from that. How do we treat these patients? That question uh, to answer fully requires an ocular oncology fellowship. And since most of your listeners won't want to do that, I'll try to break it down for you. But in general, it depends on age, laterality, and the group classification of the eye. So very small tumors, group A and even some group B, can actually be treated with laser or cryotherapy alone. Now, really, the majority of the time, the only way we see an A or a B tumor is in a family history patient that we're screening so we catch this early, or a bilateral case where one eye is group D and maybe we catch an A or B tumor in the other eye. Larger tumors are the most common way these patients present. C, and unfortunately, lots of group Ds and lots of group Es. Larger tumors require some form of chemotherapy. That can be systemic chemotherapy given intravenously or intra-arterial chemotherapy. 
And after chemotherapy, lots and lots of consolidation therapy with laser, cryotherapy, and sometimes even injections of chemotherapy for seeding are required to cure the eye. When the likelihood of saving any vision is very low, particularly in a patient with a unilateral group EI, we still progress to primary enucleation. It's a less than one hour surgery that's curative in greater than 95% of patients. It is a surgery that needs to be done by a well-trained hand and cautiously. You should minimize manipulation of the globe, obviously very careful to not puncture the sclera at any point, and a large segment of the optic nerve is needed. If you're wondering why, it's because retinoblastoma likes to invade the nerve. So if you give a long section, you're actually creating a margin to clear the disease from the child's body. Not only is primary enucleation done, but also secondary. And so secondary means that we tried to save the eye with chemotherapy and treatment, but unfortunately, this tumor is known to be persistent or recurrent, and sometimes we do need to enucleate secondarily to cure the disease. I do remember the case that I was alluding to earlier when we enucle- we ended up enucleating that patient and um, getting the length of the optic nerve that we needed was a little bit of a stressful point in the surgery when usually you don't think about it and the resident just cuts the nerve and the globe comes out. For that case in particular, that was the first time that I realized that we needed a long segment of the optic nerve. And you explained beautifully why that is. Yeah, you're right. And in the pediatric orbit, you know, the tissues are, are very sticky and the space is tight. So it can be a difficult surgical uh, surgical feat to accomplish, but it's very, very important. So how do we monitor patients with retinoblastoma for other tumors, which you had discussed earlier today? Right. This is a really good point. And as ophthalmologists, we sometimes forget how important this is because we might not be doing the monitoring. Of course, the first step is to figure out, does this patient have a germline mutation in the RB1 gene because that stratifies their risk for second tumors. In patients where the globe is salvaged, we do, as the ophthalmologist and ocular oncologist, continue to do examination under anesthesia every four to eight weeks for about three years after diagnosis. And so we're looking to make sure that the tumor has regressed and that there's no evidence of recurrence. If the patient has a germline mutation, we are also looking to see whether a completely separate new tumor has formed. In those patients that are germline or heritable, we also do periodic brain MRI to look for CNS disease, a pinealoblastoma, which can develop. And then they have this lifelong risk for second cancers. It's about 1% a year of non-ocular tumors during life. So that means that a 20-year-old survivor of retinoblastoma has about a 20% risk of developing another sarcoma or a secondary cancer. And so partnering with an oncology group and a survivor group is really critically important for this patient population. 
Well, thank you so much for that extremely helpful review of retinoblastoma. I think there were a lot of high yield points here, so I'm just going to summarize for the listeners. So anytime you see leukocoria and strabismus in a young child, you need to think about retinoblastoma and you need to rule out retinoblastoma before you start looking for another diagnosis. Patients with retinoblastoma generally present between ages one and three, though, as Dr. Barry shared with us, sometimes that can extend all the way into adulthood. One-third of cases are bilateral and hereditary, while two-thirds are unilateral and non-hereditary. The mutation is in the retinoblastoma tumor suppression gene on chromosome 13, and this was actually the first ever described tumor suppressor gene, which was cloned first in the 1980s, and that's not that long ago. Globe salvaging treatment usually involves a combination of chemotherapy and local therapy with laser and cryo. However, seeding will often require intravitreal injections of chemotherapy. Patients with germline mutations are at an increased risk of non-ocular tumors and need to be followed for life, so the treatment of retinoblastoma is often a multidisciplinary approach. That's a beautiful summary. Can I just add one little thing? Yes, please do. So we touched on it just briefly, but we said the diagnosis of retinoblastoma is clinical. And that means that unlike other tumors, we do not biopsy retinoblastoma. So no direct tumor biopsy in this disease. That's something else that they love to test. And I know that the BCSC has just started to put some of my research in about the aqueous humor liquid biopsy for retinoblastoma. That is really exciting research, but it remains in a research protocol. So any current questions, the answer is still no biopsy for retinoblastoma. Everything is done clinically. Thank you. Yes, I think that's a great point. And it is amazing to hear that your research is actually on its way to being incorporated into the BCSC. That is such a role model to look forward to. So Dr. Barry, before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? I love this question. It's my favorite of the whole the whole cast. So I'd like to tell you Anna Wintour and keep up my whole Moda MD fashion theme. But the truth is, I'm just not even that fashionable. There have been so many trailblazing women, and I'm grateful to them for my ability to be here today, for you being here, and so that we can have this conversation and share it with so many other people in medicine. So because of that, I guess I'll say Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman in the U.S. to earn a medical degree. I'd love to know what she went through and all the hurdles to get where she was. Absolutely. She's such an icon. Actually, in medical school, we had houses, kind of like Hogwarts houses, and I was in the Blackwell Society house. So um, she's definitely an icon, much like yourself. Dr. Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. It was absolutely my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time on The Pupil Pod. 